the conclusion of Canto 13 of Inferno and one last suicide. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. We have been for a while in Canto 13 of Inferno. You can tell I love it. It's just brilliant from start to finish. If you're just dropping in here, you might want to go back and catch where we are, at least through Canto 13, if not all the way back to the beginning, and walk with us up to this point and then forward. We're in the seventh circle of hell, the second ring of that circle, those violent against themselves and against their own possessions. We have had two long, different monologues from one of the suicides who has been turned into a bush, Then we had a violent scene of squanderers or suicidal squanderers breaking through the bushes, tearing them apart. They got torn up by black dogs. And now we're at the conclusion of the Canto lines 127 through 151 of Canto 13 Inferno. Here we go. My guide took me by the hand and led me to the bush that wept in vain from its bleeding stumps. Oh, Jacopo, it said, of Santa Andrea, what good did it do to make a screen of me? What culpability do I have in your guilty life? At which point my master stopped above the bush and said, Who were you that through so many wounds puff out your sorrows with the blood? And he to us, Oh, souls who got here just in time to see the dishonorable carnage that has pulled my leaves from me, collect them at my feet of this sad bush. I was from the city that changed its first patron for the Baptist. On that account, it will forever be grieved by his craft. And if it were not that at the crossing of the honor there remain some bits of the other's presence, those citizens who rebuilt it from the ashes that Attila left behind, would have done all that work in vain. I made my houses my own gibbet. And that's how the canto comes to its conclusion, with a haunting line about a guy who made his house into his own gallows or his own gibbet. So let's start through this passage. It's a second suicide in this canto. This one is the guy that got torn apart because one of the squanderers squatted down underneath the bush that he is. So what happens? Let's find out. The passage begins, my guide took me by the hand and led me to the bush that wept in vain from its bleeding stumps. What is the reticence here? It's intriguing that Virgil has to take our pilgrim and kind of pull him toward this bush. Now, it can be, as we're going to see, that there is a prophecy about Florence and Virgil somehow knows that and wants our pilgrim to experience that. Maybe. It can also be that there is a certain reticence built into the text. And I haven't talked about this except to mention it early on in one of the episodes of Canto 13. But I just want to say that there is an interpretive school that believes that this canto offers us a backstory of Dante the poet. And that is that his besetting sin 
was suicide, and thus his reticence in this canto, thus his silence, his despair at having been uh, banished from Florence, from his family, never to see them again, all of that causes him to end up in a dark wood in Canto 1, and again, this is a wood, that was a wood, there's ties to Canto 1, that was trackless back in Canto 1, this is trackless until the squanderers kind of cut a path or blaze a trail through the bushes, there's there's linking going on between all of this. There are greyhounds mentioned here. There's greyhound mentioned up in the first canto. Uh, so like all of this said, some commentators have posited that the besetting sin of our pilgrim is suicide. I'm not sure I buy it. And here's why I don't buy it. I'm not, I'm not saying that Dante might not have been suicidal. I would certainly have been from the despair that he faced on the run in medieval, well, Tuscany, Verona, etc., all around northern Italy. I mean, I would be in despair, too, at what had happened to him if it happened to me. However, one of the things I find intriguing about comedy is the lack of backstory for the pilgrim. We would expect a large backstory to be filled in, and you could argue that it is being filled in slowly instead of a revelation scene as in a modern memoir in which, you know, somebody comes across this final scene in which, wow, my past makes sense. We never get that in comedy and we shouldn't expect it. That's a modern convention. But the, the, our pilgrim is slowly revealing a backstory as he goes forward. And this is all part of that. And that could be true. But there's a way I like the ambivalence of a lack of a backstory. It permits us to, how do I say this, see the pilgrim as more of an open space. If we had the pilgrim story, if we said, for example, lust is what sent him into the dark wood and started this journey, or suicide is what sent him into the dark wood and started him on this journey, or leaving a certain way to think for another way to think is what sent him on this journey, and there may be an answer to that when we get up in Purgatorio, but all of that is fair game, and yet at this point, what I have is, to use a very modern word, a blank space. The pilgrim functions much as a mystery, as, I'm going to use a very fancy word, an aporia. Aporia is a gap in a literary text, a gap that is intentionally left there that allows me to begin as a reader to fill in that space through my own desires, wishes, projections, etc. And while I don't think that Dante the Poet <laughs> existed in contemporary literary theory, I can still say that it seems to me that the pilgrim functions as an aporia, and while we may find resonances that may provide a hint of a backstory, I like it that we're having to find them, that we're having to dig for them, and they may say more about us and our own issues than they do about the pilgrim, this, as it were, fictionalized version of the poet. That's all putting a lot of modern theory, maybe too much modern theory, down onto comedy. Yet I can see the reticence here. Virgil has to pull the pilgrim toward this bleeding stump that has been torn up by the dogs and the, the suicidally prodigal who have ripped it apart. And yet at the same time, I'm having to posit motivation underneath it. And you know what? I like that. It's open space. 
it's space for me. Let's move on. O Jacopo, it said, of Santo Andrea, what good did it do to make a screen of me? What culpability do I have in your guilty life? This is the first tercet of our second suicide. The suicide is never named, and the early commentators have all kinds of guesses as to who this is. You know what? I like it that it's not named. I like it that we come through the suicides and we finally reach one who doesn't even have a personal identity. I mean, clearly this is a guy, so Something happened to him, and we're going to find out he's from Florence. Clearly, we can find all that out. And yet, pinning him down, naming him, he has evaporated himself. He, his self-annihilation has annihilated his personhood from this text itself. And we get one line, one line of reference to what happened to him that he hung himself in his house at the end, a haunting and unbelievably strong way to end this canto, but yet he's nameless. And so I'm going to reject the early commentators' constant attempts to name this figure and just say he's an intriguing guy who asks a terrifying question. But first, let's just talk about who he says. Oh, Jacopo of Santo Andrea. I said in the last episode of this podcast, the the two suicidally prodigals who come bashing through the thicket that one of them is misnamed. Here's the misnaming. He says Giacopo. This is really Giacomo di Sant'Andrea. His name was Giacomo, not Giacopo. And there's a error in the text. Is that a transmission error? Is that a copyist error? Is that a Dante error? Not sure, but I am sure of this. Giacomo di Sant'Andrea, this figure, Ah, well, he himself was a member of Frederick II's court. So suddenly, this figure is tied back to Pierre de la Vigne and tied back to the 10th canto of Inferno, where Frederick II is inside Ferdinata's tomb. So this guy is a, is a member of Frederick II's court, and guess what? He was murdered by Ezzelino da Romano, who we saw burning up in the river of blood among the tyrants in Canto 12, line 110, if you want to know exactly where. Look at what just happened. We just tied to Canto 10 and Canto 12 with one figure by naming this suicidally prodigal person, Jacopo of Santo Andrea. We actually linked back twice. And again, we have somebody done in by court intrigue. They're just it's just it's impossible not to see the progression that in Canto 10, the warlords you can <laughs> reason with and talk to and in some way make sense of, then the ones that overstep the bounds and become tyrants and then finally hear people who are done in by that tyranny or who are ground in the wheels of political power. And so Jacopo of San Andrea. Now, that's not the suicide. That's the guy that's crashed through the bushes and made a mess of this bush. The bush says, what good did it do to make a screen of me? What culpability do I have in your guilty life? This is a terrifying question, an unbelievably large question, and it links this entire canto to the larger creation sequence laid out in Genesis. Remember I told you that 
in some ways, Canto 13 is an inverted Garden of Eden, that there are fruitless trees, that the ground has been cursed so that there are thorny bushes, as in the curse that God pronounces on the earth after Adam falls. And this, as we're coming out at the end of the Canto, what culpability do I have in your guilty life, has all the resonance of am I my brother's keeper, that which Cain says after he murders Abel after the fall. And that first murder, am I my brother's keeper, is resonant inside this line. What culpability do I have in your guilty life? What do I have to do with you? And that's the same question that Cain asks when God says, where's your brother? And Cain has murdered him. Am I my brother's keeper? This entire canto is set up with resonances of those early creation stories before and after the fall. Or how's this? The entire canto is really set up with the references to the Garden of Eden and the after effects immediately after the fall of both the Garden of Eden becoming thorny and now am I my brother's keeper? So we have this kind of beautiful weaving of those Genesis, early Genesis passages throughout Canto 13. My gosh, how complicated is this thing? Virgil, Ovid, Genesis. It's got tiebacks to other cantos inside of comedies so far and tie aheads, but we'll get to those when we get on ahead to them and tie aheads to other cantos. This canto is unbelievably structured beautiful, and it comes down to this terrifying question, what culpability do I have in your guilty life? Which honestly is a question you can ask of those who have been ground in political power. After all, political power, the ability to form governments and civil societies, is based on Face it, taking care of your brother, taking care of your sister, finding a commonality in which we root together for a common cause. And I don't mean this in some kind of Lenny Riefenstahl, nightmarish Third Reich thing. I mean that we, we disagree about what goes on, and yet we have a commonality that holds us together so that, you know, we take care of each other as a civil society. All right, well then... This question, what culpability do I have in your guilty life, strikes to the heart of trust and faith in civil society, how it breaks down under tyrants, how it falls apart when people become more interested in political power than even their own existence, how it is so seductive it can pull someone like Pierre de la Vigne down with it and this person too, and that we come down to essentially the question, am I my brother's keeper, stated in another way. It's not surprising. This was the ethics we were heading for all along, voiced, interestingly, not by Virgil, not by Dante, but by one of the damned. The canto goes on, at which point my master stopped above the bush and said, who were you that through so many wounds puff out your sorrows with the blood? And he said to us, O oh, souls, who got here just in time to see the dishonorable carnage that has pulled my leaves from me, collect them at the feet of this sad bush. So this sinner asks for something. He asks that these leaves that have been torn apart by these ravaging dogs and these crazy men running through the thicket, that the leaves be gathered back 
Robert Hollander pointed out that there's an irony here that this fellow seems more interested in his infernal body, that is, the bush that he is, than he was in his real body up top on the world when he committed suicide. He has a greater care for himself now that he's at Bush. And there's probably a savage irony running under here. And then he pushes on. He says, I was from the city that's changed its first patron for the Baptist. This is very paraphrastic. It's walking all around what it's trying to say. He's talking about Florence. Florence's first patron was the god Mars, the god of war, Mars. And when Florence underwent the conversion toward Christianity, it swapped its patron, Mars, from the Roman days to John the Baptist. So I'm from the city. And we you can't hear that without knowing the pilgrim standing right there. This whole canto, so wild, right, is coming down toward a prophecy of Florence. I mean, think about where we've been. We came into this canto at the beginning. We saw the harpies. We heard that the harpies were the ones who pronounced dire prophecies for for Aeneas in the Aeneid. I told you, watch out for what the prophecies will be. And here we are at the end. We've come out to the end with the prophecy. We've come through the end of time <laughs> with Pierre de la Vigne, And we've ended up at a prophecy here, which we're about to hit, about Florence. This canto is wild in the way it moves. And it is a constant reassessment even of its own mission. Is this canto about condemning suicide? Is it about offering a vision of the last judgment? Is it about a prophecy against Florence? Is it about the poet's exile? Is it about the pilgrim's sorrow? Is it about the poet's backstory? Is it about the pilgrim's reticence in the face of suicides? Yes, all the above. And is it about the poet's stance toward Virgil? Yes. And toward Ovid? Yes. And in fact, the poet's perhaps pushing his luck all the way toward the limits of credulity? Yes. All of it at once. The, he, paraphrastically, he's talking about Florence, first patron Mars for the Baptist. On that account, it will forever be grieved by his craft, that is, warfare. Florence will forever be a place of civil strife. So we've come through this progression, if I'm right, from Fadonata to the tyrants to one done in by court intrigue, and we come out here to a place where we find some place, Florence, which the prophecy lies that no matter the ruler, no matter how good the ruler is, it's always going to be a place tinged, grieved, tinged by warfare. In a way, you can't ever get it right in Florence. And this, the bush goes on. If it were not that at the crossing of the Arno, there remains some bits of the other one's presence, that is a statue of Mars that on Ponte Vecchio. If it were not that that thing there was there, then somehow the city would be in even graver danger. Now, we have to look at this with a very jaundiced eye in many ways. Let me say one more thing before I talk about our jaundiced look at this passage. He says, those citizens who rebuilt it on the ashes that Attila left behind would have done all that work in vain. So somehow, again, this bit of the Statue of Mars protected Florence. All right, we're going to get to the jaundiced eyed bit of that. But let me correct the text first. Attila did not turn Florence to ashes. It was 
Totila in 542 Common Era that mm, conquered the city, didn't quite leave it in ashes, but did conquer Florence. It was rebuilt after Charlemagne conquered the territory and began a rebuilding effort in Tuscany. This guy has got the wrong reference, Attila. I don't think that's a mistake on the part of the sinner of the suicide. I think that's a Dantean mistake in the text. I told you earlier when we met Attila back in the violent uh, against others back in the 12th canto that we would find Attila in the 13th canto. Well, here he is. And it's this reference that somehow he's, you know, turned the city to ashes and then it got rebuilt, but it would be an even worse fate if this little bit of the Statue of Mars was still not sitting on Ponte Vecchio over the Arno. Okay, that can't be right in a Christian poem. And so we have to stare at it for a moment and we have to narrow our eyes and think, wait a minute, you can't mean that the god Mars protects Florence. There's got to be something going on here. Either the poet's slipping, which I don't think the poet is slipping, or you can say that this last line shows the final irony. And as we've passed through the canto, the irony has gotten louder and louder until it's so loud here we can't miss it. If we're reading a Christian poem, and again, I want to remind you that I am not in this religious tradition, but if we're reading a Christian poem, which the poem certainly is, then we have to look at a very jaundiced eye at a guy who says, hey, you know what? The Statue of Mars still protects Florence from even worse warfare. The irony is loud in our face, but you know what? It's been here all along. In fact, this canto, I would argue, is a long crescendo of irony. Remember way back at the beginning, at lines, oh, 20, long in there, Virgil says to, to the pilgrim, you're going to see things that even if you read about them in my book, you wouldn't believe them. Remember this bit? The very next line, go back and look at that, lines 20, 23. The very next line is the pilgrim says, I heard voices in the woods. Virgil just said you're going to see things, and the next line is, I heard voices in the woods. It's a slight little irony there. Not what I saw, but what I heard, but Virgil just set us up to see, and yet we hear. It's a little bit of an irony. And then, remember, when Virgil talks to Pierre de la Vagne the first time, he says, tell the story to this guy, because this guy's going to return to the up-top world, to the, <laughs> to the surface of the earth. This guy's going to return there, and he can repeat your story. So Virgil offers that to Pierre de la Vagne. Pierre de la Vagne goes through his whole story, and then at the end of it, at line 76 in the canto, he says, if one of you ever gets back, wait a minute, Virgil just said this guy is promised to get back to the top of the globe, and he can tell your story. So Pierre de la Vagne doubts Virgil or doesn't really trust Virgil. He doesn't put his faith in Virgil, and we've been already told that, you know, Virgil's text, even if you read it, you can't believe it. And wow, it the irony has been building and building building until this point. And it strikes me that a careful reader will see that right here, this last sinner, this second suicide in the canto is offering us a moment in which if we're paying attention, we'll see that there has been, and I know I've used these terms before, a savage irony in this canto that has been going on underground the whole way. 
This canto is so complicated. It's unbelievable and ends with that line. I made my houses my own gibbet that I got up and hung myself inside of my own domicile in Florence. It just ends with that ringing nightmare of suicide, of hanging yourself at home, of turning your house into your gallows. Think of where we've been. Think about the woods, the harpies, the strange metamorphoses. Think about Pierre de Lavagne's court intrigue. Think about saying that all that bit about just and unjust that Pierre de Lavagne engages in. Think about his strange heresy of the resurrection, that the bodies are going to be hung on the trees. Think about the crashing through the thicket, the really wild questions about, wait a minute, how can they be gasping for breath? And how can they be torn limb from limb if they're shades? And All of it comes down to this. I made my houses my own gibbet. And why do I think that is? Here's my rationale for it. Because in the end, despite all the literary fancy dancing, besides all of the great, unbelievable intertextuality between Ovid and Virgil and Genesis and even the comedy itself that's going on inside Canto 13, it's about suicides. And the last line reminds us It's about doing violence toward yourself, against yourself, about turning your house into your gallows. That's what it's been about all along. And despite all the political intrigue, despite all the rhetorical flourishes, despite all the fancy dancing that goes on in this canto, and there is a lot of fancy dancing, which makes me very excited. It's really about the sorrow of suicide. I turned my house, my private space, I turned my house into my gibbet. And the canto's done. Remember that bit early on, injusto fece me contra me, justo, that I made so much about, fece, made? Well, here it is again. Io feci petto a me delle mie case. There it is again, that verb, to make. The first time, it was set in a rhetorical flourish by Pierre de la Vigne, and it was made beautiful and full and crazy and rhetorically arresting. Well, here's that verb again. This time, it's flatter. I made a gibbet of my house. I made a gibbet for myself of, of my houses. It's that made verb is robbed of the crazy poetry that Pierre de la Vigne gave it. And it's stripped. This is the final making. In a canto about metamorphoses, in a canto about creation, in a canto about the creation in the Garden of Eden and also the creation of thorn bushes out of souls, in a canto about all of these creative acts all based on the verb to make or to do, but to make, we finally get the just bare bones. I made my houses my own gibbet. And the canto ends because in the end, this is the final metamorphosis. And it is the most terrifying of all that the place that you call home could be the place where you commit suicide. Absolutely frightening. And it should be absolutely frightening. A bone shaking ending to an absolute tour de force of a canto. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I always say that, don't I? Well, anyway, I hope you do enjoy this episode. I hope you enjoy them all. I hope that you will attempt to connect with me however you would like. Hashtag at Walking with Dante on Twitter. I'll find you. Uh, we can connect. You follow me, I'll follow you. We can talk more. You can also find me on Instagram or Facebook. You can find me on my website, Mark Scarborough, or walkingwithdante.com. So many ways to find me. You know, I spoke to a, a social media consultant about my cooking life with my husband, Bruce, the other day. And she said, at the end of your podcast, make sure you just offer one way to connect with you. Okay, I'm not. And this podcast doesn't bear any resemblance to most other podcasts. So there you go. So I'm just giving you a thousand ways. Connect, join, rate, like, you know, the whole story. Do all that stuff and come back. Because you know what? We may be done with the second ring of the seventh circle the violent of hell but we got the third ring to go um the third ring is the biggest ring of all we got to get to the blasphemers next on walking with dante